This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. Danse, Anin, Boujou, hello and welcome. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. In popular culture, Indigenous people are often portrayed as being of the past, living traditional lives, or they're not shown at all. And aside from a few characters, like my personal favourite, Chakotay from Star Trek, Indigenous people aren't often portrayed as existing 10, 50, or even 100 years from now. So what does it mean for Indigenous people to look to the future and see themselves there? We all know about the holodeck and Star Trek. So what would our holodeck look like? It's starting to get us to think about what's what's in the future for us. What are we going to be doing 10, 20, 100 years from now? And that's part of the joy of our writing these stories, is that we do see ourselves in the future. And that world, to me, is part of some incredible imagined future that we might get to one day. This week on Radio Indigenous, how Indigenous people are thinking, writing, and portraying themselves in the future. Now, before we get too deeply into this, a little context. The term Indigenous Futurism was first coined by my first guest, Dr. Grace Dillon from Portland State University. Since coining the term, she has edited a collection of short stories called Walking the Clouds, an anthology of Indigenous science fiction, which is the first of its kind. She joins me from Portland. Welcome, Grace. Welcome, and thank you. Now, for our listeners who might not be familiar with the genre, what is Indigenous Futurisms? Indigenous Futurisms is a area where Indigenous writers can create thought experiments in a scientific sense and center Indigenous people within that world. As Helen Higg Brown, um, who is from the Chakota Nation and has created the film The Cave in her own language, um, she has called it taking the fiction out of science fiction. And in the process of that, sharing the values and ethics that are connected to science, which is ceremony, singing, dancing, all forms of art, along with growing plants, developing medicines, creating space rockets. (laughs) Space rockets and canoes, that's us. And space canoes. Thank you. (laughs) So essentially, it's taking the ancient knowledge that Indigenous peoples have always carried... Uh, and maybe or may not have been aware of, but still carry, into yes. what it might look like in a future setting. Yes, and, and to go even further, because I just realized, I mean, the, real, uh, the reason why I was even interested in science fiction is that as a little girl growing up <clears throat> with our Anishinaabe stories, our stories combined um, science 
with art. That's the way I learned science. <laughs> That's the way I would learn about plants. You know, I would learn about how a certain kind of frog could slip into bushes that would have been poisonous for others, right? And then you learn about the poison of that bush through that story. So growing up with those kind of stories is just a a natural part of your living and culture and being. Then when you see science and you are fascinated with science, it is the medium that is most interesting. is to tell that um, science as a story. Right, yeah. Why do you think it's important that Indigenous people um, write about themselves in a future setting? Ah, well, so often, so many of us are viewed as the last of the race, or the lost race, or the vanishing race, or the... It was fascinating because I was just at the University of Minnesota were just a spectacular conference um, put on by undergraduates. They were just amazing. And it was on the anthropology of science fiction. And, you know, I was giving my talk on Indigenous Futures. <laughs> and then there was one very sweet elderly gentleman who asked, and he had asked very thoughtful and intelligent questions throughout. And he asked me in real seriousness, and he said, so do you see yourself as natives existing in the future? And I I was a little startled, you know, <laughs> because from my perspective, yes, no problem. You know? <laughs> Check. But I could tell he was really worried about that. Really? And I said, oh, yes, yes, and that's part of the joy of our writing these stories, is that we do see ourselves in the future, And we're, in a way, contemplating and just experimenting. It's a thought experiment with what that could be like, you know, Mm -hmm. and and how can we be mutually responsible. So in 2018, the movie Black Panther was a hugely successful hit, and it brought an interest in Afrofuturism to the mainstream. And Black Panther was popular not only among black audiences, but also indigenous audiences. I remember going to see this movie and crying. Yeah. It was so emotional. So do you think we're going to see like an indigenous version of Black Panther very quickly or when do you think that we'll be able to get emotional about our own movies? Yes. Um, There's a couple projects that I actually cannot speak about because (gasps) of non-disclosure agreements, but the one that I can refer to and it'll be of, it'll be Daniel H. Wilson. He's Cherokee and his uh, novel uh, Robo Apocalypse was bought up by Steven Spielberg, and now Michael Bay is the director of that film, and they're going to make it into a big, big blockbuster film. Cool. So, and that's centered with Cherokee people and and the Osage Nation. So we'll see what happens with the film. <laughs> uh, but I really. To be perfectly honest, I think the big breakout will be when you have indigenous filmmakers that are making the film, Mm -hmm. although there are some amazing filmmakers that, that are getting in touch with us and spend a great deal of time shifting their film and being very respectful. So there are those kind of possibilities, too. But yes, 
I absolutely foresee that happening. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. Aw, thank you so much. I'm going to call you back tomorrow and we'll chat. (laughs) And I say, have fun, you guys, with Indigenous futurism. There's so much out there. (laughs) That was Grace Dillon, professor at Portland State University. She's the editor of Walking the Clouds, an anthology of Indigenous science fiction. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. This week we're exploring Indigenous futurism, so there's no better time to talk about Indigenous people in space. Luke Hornham is a writer and graduate student who wrote an article called The Space Indian's Star Map for the New Inquiry, which takes a look at what it means for Indigenous people to be seen as space explorers. Lou joins me from New York City. Welcome, Lou. Hello. Now, Lou, in the article, you talk about the first time that you saw a fictional depiction of an Indigenous person in space. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Right. So that's the short film, The Sixth World. um, And it was kind of this revelation for me. It's about a Navajo commander who's on the spaceship um, hurtling towards Mars with the intent of growing corn crops there. And in the film, there's like these genetically modified corn crops. But by the end, she's returned to the ancestral corn crops as kind of um, humanity's one chance for life on Mars. Seeing that film was, yeah, the first time I think I saw an indigenous person in space that was like explicitly indigenous and based on uh, like a real living indigenous culture as opposed to something like Avatar, right, where they're obviously meant to be modeled on indigenous people, but it's much more, you know, the romanticized image than anything drawn from a real practice of indigeneity. Yeah. And so how did it make you feel to see an indigenous person in space in an indigenous story? I think it really answered a sort of loneliness that I'd had mm-hmm. um, and thinking that I'd often sort of identified with the alien or the figure of the alien just because I was so interested in space, but also feeling alienated. Yeah. Uh, so then seeing this film and knowing that there was some other Navajo person out there who was also thinking about traveling to Mars was like incredible to think that you weren't alone in having these kinds of visions or that this wasn't something that was uh, alien to being indigenous, mm. that you could be from one place and still dream about traveling to another. When you say it answered a loneliness for you, did you even know that you were lonely up until then? Well, yeah, I think that I'd always felt, um, I mean, I was living in New York City at that time. um, And I've lived in New York City since I was 18. And there are many Native people here, but we're all sort of scattered. Mm. Um, It's really feels like only in the last two years that I've started to meet and connect to a a Native community here in the city. So the loneliness was both because I didn't have a sort of community around and also just feeling the isolation of the nerd or the weird, you know, (laughs) uh, being like a preoccupation with things that don't fit into what are supposed to be like Indigenous interests or um, seem relevant to Indigenous culture. Um, But then, you know, it's like after seeing this movie and sort of getting more into Indigenous futurism, you start to realize that there have been these aspects actually kind of in your life all along. Um, Star Wars is a huge thing for Mm. Navajo people. Yes, uh, yes. Which I kind of started to realize like, oh, there's like um, 
this whole seemingly like kind of cultural connection to Star Wars that I thought, you know, oh, this is just my weird nerdy predilection, um, but that there's actually something that is connecting for yeah. a lot of us. Now, your research focuses on black and indigenous science fiction. What, uh, what do these subgenres offer that traditional sci-fis like Star Trek doesn't? Uh, well, I think it picks up on the metaphors of colonialism that are often in science fiction or, you know, so Star Trek, this idea of exploration, of contact, and it reorients the the viewer or the reader to looking at those histories from the, maybe the the margins or from the obscured positions. So to reimagine the defining aspects of colonial encounters like contact and say, why does that have to be a moment of um, antagonism or the precursor to conquest? So taking these big ideas in science fiction and saying, well, it doesn't have to be that narrative, that uh, we can take the same setting, the same idea, but transform it so that it's not inevitable that colonialism happens or that slavery happens, that, that those transformations are possible, uh, not just in the future, but to reflect back onto the present. So it becomes a powerful way to just imagine how things could be different and could have been different. So it's a retelling almost. Yeah, a retelling and a kind of not just telling the same story, right, but but transforming what the assumptions are that make the story even possible. Right. Now, in the introduction of Star Trek, you know, the famous line, space Mm. is the final frontier, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which brings to mind this idea of untouched land uh, of colonization, as you said. So uh, where do people of color currently fit in these stories about space, or do they fit at all? Well, usually the role that is sort of metaphorically tied to people of color through the image of the alien is, yeah, this mysterious other or um, this like uncivilized savage, right? Because they're alien, they're already dehumanized. um, So it becomes uh, an easy placeholder for people who are dehumanized on Earth to inspire these figures in outer space. So except I guess Star Trek and Star Wars have both been trying to um, become more like multicultural in who their heroes are, Mm -hmm. right? So that there's not just like the white male hero. But often that was in the, like the golden age of sci-fi or the classic sci-fi. We have, you know, the white male hero encountering these like strange beings. And those strange beings will often literally be like aliens of color because they'll be different colors or have these other kinds of markers that are meant to subtly or not so subtly remind us of different races or ethnicities from Earth. So Mm. I've thought a bit about, yeah, the figure of the savage alien being both a stand-in for um, black or indigenous subjects and often the idea of like a swarming alien intelligence being a manifestation of uh, anxieties around immigration. Wow. That is an interesting way to look at it. I'd never seen it that way before. Um, as you outline in, in your article, the idea of a person in, of color living, working, and exploring space mm-hmm. um, can be jarring to some, you know, to some audiences. <laughs> Why do you think that that's the case? Um, well, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that science fiction, and specifically space, is a space of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very troubling for those who want to keep Indigenous people in a historic past, which is sort of a, a safe place for indigeneity to be constrained to because then it doesn't make its demands to the dominant society, right? So then it's troubling to think about that difference, that difference that Indigenous people bring uh, and that they advocate for into a future. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is there's this unspoken understanding or assumption that we're all going to be dead in the future. 
Right. Or yeah. that we're not even supposed to be here in the present. Mm-hmm. So this future becomes troubling, whether it's, you know, America or Canada or whatever sort of colonial state is always trying to perpetuate itself into the future to think that there will still be this challenge from the prior occupants of these lands. Mm-hmm. In your article, you write about how indigenous peoples would explore space differently. Mm-hmm. How would we uniquely explore space? Oh, this is um, where I get into just the idea of contact a form of contact that is not based on immediately enforcing a hierarchy of beings, mm-hmm. right? So to allow like a, a true exploration that is about openness and is about connection rather than about conquest or about control or about extraction. So, I mean, with a lot of the industries around space travel now, it's about how can we go into space and find these deposits of some sort of energy source because we've exasperated all the sources here on Earth. So it's just sort of continuing the same process of extraction until exhaustion, but in space. And I think that that's such a shame in the way that it's a shame here on Earth, but it's also a shame because there's so much wonder that I feel thinking about space and just the the encounter with this like radical, awesome difference to think that you would encounter that and then just immediately want to control and extract um, It's a very sad way to think about space for me. And I think what indigenous practice offers is another way of interacting with this world, but also just interacting with worlds generally. Indigenous science fiction is is a growing genre. Mm -hmm. What do you think the value of these stories are? Well, the empowering part of just seeing yourself in a future is perhaps the the first and, and most obvious to me. You know, so many people just personally can't imagine a future for themselves. So to collectively be able to create a very distant future and to say, you know, we will make it there, that just by heralding it, you're making it possible, right? That image of the future. Thank you, Lou, for your time today. Yes, thank you. Lou Cornham is a writer and graduate student at the University of New York. To read their article from the New Inquiry, visit our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. Still to come on Unreserved, is the future of fashion indigenous? A Como Pueblo designer, Lauren Aragon's futuristic fashion line is inspired by the strength of women and aliens. I kind of studied the alien culture a little bit further, and I started to notice that there's a matrilineal system involved. So matrilineal system involved in the, in the movies and matrilineal system involved in our, in our beliefs and just kind of tied the two ideas together. But uh, we introduced the alien xenomorph collection, which was on dresses and tees. To me, it's uh, the ultimate strength of the women to create life. And that's all really what the aliens want. That story in just a few minutes. This is Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM 169, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. Envisioning the future today as we explore Indigenous futurisms. And you can't talk about futurisms without talking about technology. Indigenous Matriarch for Media Lab, or IM4 Media Lab, is running free workshops for Indigenous artists, storytellers, producers, and community members to learn about VR, AR, and 360 video. They're happening in Vancouver in partnership with Emily Carr of Art and Design. With a goal of teaching students the skills they need to create immersive virtual reality experiences. We headed out to one of their workshops to find out more.
My name is Adrienne LaRock, and I'm here today at the IM4 um, 360 video workshop. I'm Cree from Muscogee, Alberta, and um, I work with the First Nations Technology Council. I was interested in taking this class because I wanted to learn uh, what the potential applications of this kind of having virtual reality and 360 videos could be applied in education. Um, but the other side of that, too, is I'm interested in how I could incorporate it into my own um, artistic expression as well. So it's a little bit twofold for me. In the last couple days, I've collected footage uh, for a 360 video. So I recorded myself um, setting up and actually setting up how I would normally set up my beading table at home. And I captured some video of me um, beading. And I just kind of added like a little bit of a narrative over top of that about you know, thinking about what does it mean to be an Indigenous person today in the modern world and how do I incorporate that into my art. We are in one of the uh, workshops that the IM4 Lab is offering to the Indigenous community here in Vancouver and at Emily Carr um, University of Art and Design. The What's happening is this is an introductory class to, to VR production. My name is Loretta Todd. My family is a, one of the original um, families from the Red River, the Métis uh, Red River. Um, our family is also uh, from the St. Paul Métis Settlement and um, also Whitefish Lake First Nations. And we also have relatives in Turtle Mountain in, uh, in the Dakotas, um, the Chippewa. And I have lived in Vancouver for many years as a filmmaker. So virtual reality is the intersection of technology and taking you into a virtual space. So the technology is taking you out of the physical space and taking you into the virtual space. We are also involved in what is called um, AR, and AR is a, another form of where it's sort of an interaction between virtual and the real. So that would be like uh, Pokemon Go, that kind of game. We're also doing uh, AR training as well and production. This actually, for me, goes back to another time when I was first starting out as a filmmaker, and there was a conference at Banff and I was invited to help organize um, a panel um, with indigenous people who were looking at these new technologies. The technologies back in the 90s, VR was not what it is today, but it still was in its sort of uh, beginning phases, and there was still a lot of talk about what is virtual reality. So we brought together some great speakers, and one of them was Dr. Leroy Little Bear, and he talked about virtual reality. He says, you know, we've always had virtual reality. Virtual reality is when we go on quests, when we go into um, other places beyond this dimension. That's something that stayed with me this whole time. So as I saw virtual reality getting bigger and kind of coming back into play uh, in applications in healthcare and education, um, but that always was driving me in terms of ensuring that we look at virtual reality from an indigenous perspective, that we indigenize virtual reality, that we aren't just kind of taking the technology and, you know, putting the, 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 the visors on and going, oh, now we do virtual reality. No, we're indigenizing it, and that's the whole point of the IM4 lab. My name is uh, Jason Wong. I'm a uh, Gitsan from the Gitsan Nation. I'm in the program just to learn a little bit more about virtual reality and, and the application itself um, in connection with uh, a capstone project that I worked on in the executive MBA program in Indigenous Business and Leadership at SFU, 
where I did a, a concept feasibility paper on the use of virtual reality as a learning tool in education. In, in this project, I've got a great partner here with uh, Caroline. We're, we're just working on a, a project that takes us through the Aboriginal gathering place and welcomes us into the area and, and kind of shows us the space and the artifacts and, and, and the cultural items that are in the space as well. It's, uh, it was really interesting to learn about virtual reality and all of the little tools and, and, and uh, that, that go into making just a short piece like this. It was, uh, it's a great learning process. What really interests me is the, the potential of using virtual reality um, with the main focus on non-Indigenous people who, who don't have that lived experience or, or that real understanding of, in, of Indigenous um, people, their identities, culture, traditions, governance, spirituality, language, everything that goes goes into it, and, and actually be able to um, have them uh, put into an immersive experience where, where it'll be more engaging. Uh, I, I think it's far better than, than opening a book and looking at pictures, actually, actually being immersed in, in an experience and seeing and, and feeling what's going on around you. You know, this word futurism is something that uh, I know the Indigenous community has embraced. You know, a lot of communities have embraced that. The African-American community has, because often we are not, we don't get to voice our future. Our future is really, you know, the past. That's, but that's kind of been what we've been told, that really, you know, we, we don't belong to the future. But I also find it complicated because in an Indigenous sense, there is no past, present, and future that they all kind of coexist. And again, you know, I draw on teachings from, you know, Dr. Leroy Little Bear and, you know, my own teachers and this idea of how time isn't experienced in quite the same way and isn't expressed in quite the same way. So the future doesn't really mean the same thing. But politically, it means a lot because to be able to say that we are here and will be forever, that we're not just, you know, from before, that we are... Um, beyond um, and that we are timeless and that we will we will go on forever is is really an important political act and we have to say that kind of exciting too because you know of course a lot of us who are involved in this are you know sci-fi nerds or science nerds and so on and some of us are trekkies and of course we all know about the holodeck on on in star trek so what would our holodeck look like right and what would its purpose serve um, I think those are all things people have talked about, you know, helping to use VR to, to help, you know, recreate time before. Um, but also it's also imagining, you know, this, this, this beyond, right? You know, this, so we see ourselves uh, forever. That was filmmaker and organizer Loretta Todd, as well as students Adrian Laroque and Jason Wong. At a recent IM4 Media Lab workshop in Vancouver, teaching people how to design VR experiences. The free introductory and intermediate workshops have taken place in different parts of British Columbia. Thanks to the CBC's Anne Penman for sharing that story. Indigenous futurism is popping up in writing, film, art, and video games. But it's also appearing in more wearable art, fashion. We are a women's couture evening gown, evening dress uh, designer. Really, we are a celebration of the strength and empowerment of women. So taking a lot of the background in our culture, which is a matrilineal system to begin with, and our pottery art culture, and really trying to portray a lot of those thoughts and ideas in the art culture as well. 
into fashion. That's Lauren Aragon, the co-founder of Akinav, a women's fashion line. Many of Lauren's pieces are black and white with detailed geometric patterns inspired by Acoma Pueblo pottery designs. But Lauren's journey into fashion might surprise you. Unreserved's Stephanie Cram has more. Lauren Aragon says his family pushed him to pursue a career in technology, so he went into mechanical engineering. But a trip to the Santa Fe Indian Market, the largest annual Indigenous arts market in the United States, inspired him to pursue a more creative field. Art was always in my background. My mother always encouraged me to try different things and explore creativity. And so it stuck with me through the years. But it wasn't until the first time I went to the Santa Fe Indian Market, which is really what struck the inspiration to be a part of that whole art community. And just seeing the progression in the native arts in both traditional and modern was just really overwhelming, and I wanted to be a part of that. Aragon says that fashion seemed like the most obvious choice for a creative job, since he saw parallels between engineering and fashion design. A lot of times I had to take things apart, so um, reverse engineer and figure things out. So it's the same way with fashion. You know, how does this garment go together? And you're trying to figure that out. And then I soon realized that there's a lot of math involved. <laughs> We're trying to work with, uh, especially with curvatures of the body, and there's this totally different change in, in how I worked, worked looked at things as far as straight lines and hard edges to soft curves and, you know, the the body. Body, body form, just trying to work with that. Aragon is part of the growing trend of designers drawing inspiration from ideas of what the future looks like. His clothing is undeniably modern, even futuristic looking. But for Lauren, looking to the future also means drawing inspiration from the past. I think there's always going to be a tie to tradition, always going to be a tie to culture in some way. Yeah, so we're mostly known for our pottery art and a lot of our ancestral designs were monochrome, so black on white pots. And I like to say that we are kind of the fine china of the Pueblo <laughs> art culture and Pueblo pottery culture. Our pottery, again, is a lot of geometrical designs which are laid out in fine line details, a lot of zigzags. Um, a lot of the thing, designs that are portrayed in our pottery are, are really representative of life itself. So how does this connection to the past also look forward to the future? And what does that look like in clothing? Aragon looked to pop culture and films specifically. The Alien franchise inspired a xenomorph Hanu collection, and he found a surprising connection to his own indigenous culture in the films. I kind of studied the alien culture a little bit further, and I started to notice that there's a matrilineal system involved. So matrilineal system involved in the, in the movies and matrilineal system involved in our, in our beliefs and just kind of tied the two ideas together. But uh, the alien design that I came out with is a very Membri-style design. Membri's being an animal or some kind of creature that's portrayed in, in two-dimensional art on pottery. So I, I took that design of the alien profile and made my own uh, memory styles, a futuristic memory style, so to speak, and introduced that on first decals, which were a big hit, and then people really wanted to see it on more wearable art. So we introduced the alien xenomorph collection, which was on dresses and tees. Again, it's just a celebration of the matrilineal system that's in the film there, and just kind of to me, it's uh, the ultimate strength of the women to create life. And that's all really what the aliens want. Yeah, a lot of people are surprised that that's, you can take those ideas and go deeper <laughs> with it. Aragon is part of a larger trend of Indigenous people thinking about the future to challenge the idea that Indigenous people are a thing of the past and extinct. Through his clothing designs, he draws from the past but drives that narrative so far into the future, he's reached into outer space. 
For him, these narratives are important because they assert that Indigenous people are here to stay. Futurisms, I think, is starting to get us to think about what's what's in the future for us. You know, how, where are we going to be? What what are we going to be doing? 10, 20, 100 years from now. And I'm glad that that's really at the forefront because that's, again, we what we try to push is try to influence the younger generations to start thinking about, you know, what, what is the future going to be? You know, um, you have to get off the reservation. <laughs> you have to go explore outside of your, your hometowns and where you're from and, and really try to find your own identity and bring that back to your culture, bring that back to your people and, and share that with everyone. That was Lauren Aragon, one of the creators of Akinav, a women's fashion line based out of Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks to Unreserved's Stephanie Cram for that. The first time May's longboat saw Indigenous representation in video games, it was in the world of Warcraft. The animal-like character was loosely based on Native American culture. Longboat, who is Mohawk and French-Canadian, is now doing thesis work in media studies at Concordia University in Montreal, creating a video game that reflects his own experiences as an Indigenous person. The only problem was he didn't know how to make a video game, so he got some help. With him is Ray Kaplan, who is a Mi'kmaq artist from Listigouche and is helping with the visual aspects of the game. They're here to talk about Terra Nova, their video game based in the future. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. So, Maze, tell me the concept of the game. So, Terra Nova is set on Earth far, far in the future after a cataclysmic event kind of shook the planet. And it was this cataclysmic event that kind of caused a subset of humanity to board a giant starship and leave to go find a new home uh, on a different planet. Meanwhile, uh, not all of the people could go on that journey. And so the people that were left behind essentially were tasked with rebuilding the damaged Earth and kind of forming a new relationship uh, with the planet. So since that subset of humanity left to go colonize another Earth, the Earth has started to heal. But then the game takes place when those that left return. Um, and unknowingly return back to Earth, uh, their home, which they do not remember. Here we are on new contact sort of situation. What is the goal of the game? The goal of the game is to essentially have a first contact experience. The game is actually a two-player cooperative game. And so two players side by side, essentially in the same room, have to control each character, Terra and Nova, and navigate through a series of platforms and puzzles uh, towards one another, and then have a dialogue and an interface with one another. So the goal essentially is to cooperate, to communicate, and to figure out what the future may hold for both together. Mm-hmm. And then you approached Ray to help with the creation of the game. Ray, what interested you in this project? Many, many different aspects of this project interest me. One being I have myself a, a profound interest in video games. I want to do video games. I want to create art and media for video games. And two, the concept that Maze presented to me, or the, the, video, the idea of the video game, was really drawing. It drew me in. It's a mix of sci-fi, but also a mix of indigenous uh, themes and, and that sort of stuff. So I was I was immediately drawn by it. Can you describe what the game looks like? Yes. Um, since I'm the only artist on this <laughs> game um, and the only animator, I 
I have full reign over everything that's been being shown, but of, of course with help by uh, Maze of directing me and the creative side of the art. So the game is sort of like a resemble the style anyways. It's kind of like an 8-bit kind of retro-looking game sort of uh, with pixel pixel art style like resemblance of Super Nintendo and stuff like that. I mean, the look of the game is like picture like destroyed like cities uh, flooded because the earth has warmed up and the the society of people this culture living on top of these cities uh on top literally on these broken skyscrapers and their culture has sort of adapted to you know repurpose a lot of the forgotten and lost material by the people that left the earth and so and i guess and that's where i can definitely apply some little indigenous themes and subtleties in the culture that they're using to repurpose the uh, the stuff left behind yeah. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maze why did you want to set your game in the future the inspiration from the game for the game kind of came from a concept more so than a story. The story was kind of born out of the concept, and that concept um, was one that many indigenous cultures and societies know as first contact with, I guess, settler peoples. So starting there, like I wanted to tell a story of first contact, but uh, I didn't really want to do it in a historically framed kind of manner. I wanted to create something new uh, and something that had the possibility for many different outcomes of that contact to happen. So instead of just focusing on the war and destruction or the disease that came out of first contact, making room for that to happen again in the future, but also potentially seeing the hope of what, I guess, the coming together of two cultures, Indigenous and settler, could mean in the future. Mm. Why do you think it's important to show Indigenous people in the future? I think oftentimes Indigenous folks aren't told that they have a future. I've worked with lots of Indigenous youth over the years through uh, work and school. And when kind of prompted to envision what their future looks like in a week or a month or a year or several years, it's kind of hard for them to put into words. So I think it's projects like the one Ray and I are working on, why those are important for showing not only Indigenous youth, but our communities, kind mm-hmm. of like what is possible uh, and what we're all kind of like striving for. Yeah. Mm. Uh, earlier we talked about loosely basing characters on Indigenous people. What does it mean to both of you to know that this game is inspired by Indigenous people and made by Indigenous people? I think it's great. I think it's wonderful knowing that Indigenous people have created a game with very subtle Indigenous elements. And again, like, yeah, a lot of uh, the characters in this game, they they don't have a lot of stereotypical things because in a way, I guess we're trying to, like, stop that, I guess. Yeah. There's been a lot of misrepresentation. And so I guess it's us trying to contribute to, like, uh, reclaiming that sort of thing. Exciting. Gamers everywhere are marking their calendars. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, uh, both of you, for your time today. Thank you. Thanks, Rosanna. Mays Longboat and Ray Kaplan are designing a video game called Terra Nova, which will be out later this year. That's it for this week's episode of Unreserved. We'll be back in this radio space next week for more community, culture, and conversation. This episode was produced by Stephanie Cram, Kyle Muzika, Zoe Tennant, and Anna Lazowski. Special thanks to Ann Penman this week. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Thank you for listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1. I go say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.